our attention to God's Word, so I invite you, if you have your copy of the Scriptures, to turn with me to Daniel uh, chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible and would like to follow along, uh, you, will, you will find a, a Bible in one of, under one of the chairs in front of you. It's the black book, and you will find our text on page 743. Page 743. Daniel chapter 6. I have foolishly neglected to acquire a glass of water, and if someone would be so kind as to grab one of those in the next few minutes, I would very much appreciate that. Thank you. We can edit that off the tape later. So, you know. Daniel chapter 6. One of the difficulties, one of the problems that often happens as we read the Bible is we feel uh, the cultural distance between what's going on then and there and their lives and what they were used to to us today. And sometimes that cultural distance even prevents us from really understanding meaningfully the text that we have or how to apply it to our lives. Uh, What good is the Bible if we don't understand what it means and understand what we're supposed to do with it? And so one of the great blessings that we have when we are reading from the Old Testament is the New Testament. Because the New Testament will very often quote or allude to various passages in the Old Testament and thus becomes our divine commentary on what is taking place there. Uh, Obviously God inspired the Old Testament and the New Testament writers and so they wrote what they wanted to write what they thought they should write, but God was so superintending the process that what they wrote is exactly what he wanted them to write. So that way, what we have before us confidently is is God's word. And if in the New Testament, God uses the writers to look back to the Old Testament and say, this is what this passage is all about, how much more should we listen to them so that we can understand how to rightly understand the text that is before us? And certainly not all of the Old Testament is quoted in the New or even alluded to or referred to, but there is enough basic bits that if we understand the parts that are quoted and how the New Testament tells us to understand, we will also learn how then to read the rest of the Old Testament uh, that is not quoted or alluded to. Why do I give you that lesson on biblical interpretation this morning? For this reason, the passage that we have before us this morning in Daniel chapter 6 is commented on in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 11. And at verse 33, what we see the author of Hebrews telling us is that the events that take place in Daniel's life in our text and the circumstances by which he comes out on the end unscathed is the result of his faith in God. So what we see happening in the life of Daniel, what we see not just happening in his life, but what we see in his life, the characteristics of him as the people, as one of the people of God, all of that springs from his faith in God. So we are told to read this chapter in the context of faith in God. And so specifically this morning, what we want to do is we seek to unpack Daniel chapter 6 and understand it. We want to see what faith in God should produce in a person's life. Or to put it another way, what are the characteristics of a life of faith? So if you put your faith in God deeply, consistently, what what should the fruit of that faith be? What should your faith look like? All right, that's what we want to see this morning. And the first thing that we see is this. True faith is seen in evident godliness. True faith is seen in evident godliness. We see this in the first nine verses. Last week at the end of chapter 5, we saw that Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. The, the, the kingdom, the previous ruler, had fallen in battle, and now Darius had taken control of Babylon. And now in chapter 6, verse 1, we read, It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps, 
to be throughout the whole kingdom. And with them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall, find, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. May that God bless the reading of his word. Now, in some ways, we should not be surprised by what we read, but in other ways, it should stand back and cause us to marvel. We marvel in part because after these six chapters, we have the story of Daniel that from a human perspective is an impossibility. Simply from the human uh, perspective of how things work in the world, this should never have happened. We should never get to Daniel chapter 6 and have Daniel being one of three high officials placed over the kingdom and doing such a good job and being so well respected by this pagan king that he is now going to become effectively the prime minister over all of Babylon. We started off in chapter 1 seeing he was this teenager this exile brought in by a conquered people, and yet because of his faith in God, God blessed him, and he was shown to be strong and wise and faithful to the studies that he was forced into by the Babylonians, and therefore he and his friends rose to prominence. Still yet, he rose to further prominence as God gave him the ability to interpret the prophetic dream given to the king, and such was his continuing rise over the course of the reign of four kings, that God continued to have his hand on this young man so that now an old man, even when a kind of uh, prideful and arrogant king says, I don't have anything to do with with those Judeans, with those Jews, God puts Daniel back in front of his face as the only person who could give him the solution to the problem that he had, which was, again, another mysterious dream. And yet he didn't want the answer, which was, tonight you die. And now, here is the next king, recognizing the wisdom, the faithfulness of Daniel's character. And he has again risen as the cream, as it were, to the very top, given prominence and responsibility. Daniel distinguished himself above all the high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. What is that spirit? It is a spirit wrought in him by God himself. Because Daniel has sought God's face, God has given Daniel a wise and excellent spirit. And Darius is impressed. He spots it in Daniel. There is something different about him. He is not underhanded. He's not just vying for power. He is simply doing the job that he's been asked to do, and he does it with excellence. And therefore, again, he says, the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom, verse 3. But we know this didn't go well with the other guys. This did not sit well with them. They... They were envious of Daniel, this foreigner who was being put in authority above them, and so they began to conspire against him. They decided they would try and find some terrible secret and reveal it to the king, so that way the king would reverse his decision and say, there's no way I can put Daniel in power. I think some modern politicians have read the book of Daniel. That's all I'm saying. Uh, the, The mudslinging continues today. There's a problem, though, when it comes to Daniel. The high officials, 
dig. The satraps dig. They talk to his neighbors. They talk to his friends. They talk to his enemies. And at the end of the day, there is no fault that can be found in him. Nothing. They can find no dirt. They can find no mud to sling. They can find no reason to go to the king and say, this guy should not be put into power. But that didn't stop them from crafting a plan. These men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Think about the implications of what they are saying. Daniel's faithfulness was not just to an earthly king. He wasn't just doing a good job, a respectful job, an honorable job, a hard-working job for this foreign king to which he was only enslaved but also employed. He is also working for the divine king, the God who stands over all things. In fact, so evident was his godliness, his faithfulness to God, that even his enemies know he would never do anything that would contradict or defy or undermine the law of his God. Now, how would you want that as a reputation? I would. I would. That should be the desire of our heart to have that kind of reputation for evident godliness, not just to ourselves, but to those in this church and to those beyond this, to even our enemies. Isn't that exactly what we see here? People who want to bring Daniel down and yet they know he is a godly man in whom we can find no fault. The only way we're going to catch him out is, be, is by highlighting, by emphasizing his obvious love for his God, his Savior, and his King. It's only there that we're going to find fault with him before the King. That should cause us to think twice about our actions, shouldn't it? It should cause us to think twice about how we go about living our lives, where our priorities are, what we talk about, not just in the, the walls of this building and among this fellowship, but out in the world. What is our reputation? What are we known for? It is so easy to, to, to want to kind of put, put our walk with God on the back burner, isn't it? Uh, I found myself uh, a couple months ago out in public, and, and a neighbor, actually it, it, was, it was in my front yard in, in publicly, but uh, our, our neighbor came up and was talking, and just in an offhanded comment, he, I don't remember what it was talking about, lawn care. I said something about uh, one of my friends at church had X, Y, and Z equipment, and he kind of gave me a funny look, and I thought, like, oh, and I thought, why am I worried about saying I got a friend at church? There was a part of me that immediately said, oh, you shouldn't have said that. You know, now he's going to be offended. And I thought, no, 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 no. This is who I am. I mean, as the guy that stands behind this pulpit, at the very least, this is my life. I, I am part of the people of God, and there's no reason that I should seek to hide that. doesn't mean I've got to wear it as a badge and you know, walk around pompously, you know, hey, I'm a preacher, you know. Uh, no, but at the same time, I shouldn't be like, well, you know, I want to build a relational bridge first. Hogwash, I say to that. Yeah, be nice. Don't be condemning. Don't be slinging, you know, well, you're just a dirty, rotten sinner. No, 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 no. But at the same time, don't shy away from letting people know you belong to God and you are faithful to him because what he has done for you. That kind of evident godliness, though, begins by having faith in God. There's no way that we will get to the point where we care nothing about what people think, only what God thinks, unless we first trust that God. If we come to the place in our life where from the smallest detail to the largest detail, from the smallest provision to the greatest crisis, He is our rock. He is our refuge. He is our shield. He is the one in whom we place our faith and our confidence. 
It was this evident godliness that was in Daniel's life that became the basis for the satraps' plan to depose him. Verse 6 says, Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors, are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. Now, first of all, these leaders lie, don't they? Because you know there's no way Daniel was putting his seal of approval on that. And yet they've said, oh, everybody in the kingdom agrees, all the officials. Second, we have to ask, why would Darius go along with this kind of thing? Well, first of all, we need to understand people are not offering prayers and bowing down to him as God. Rather, he is acting as the one mediator between God and man. So that way, whatever God you're praying to, whatever God you're seeking to worship or call out to, you are going to do it through Darius as your high priest. That is what the point of this mandate is all about. And I think when we understand it that way, we understand this is going to help this new king. It's going to help him consolidate his power and his influence over this newly conquered people. But we also realize it becomes a big source of temptation for Daniel here. Again, here's here's an elderly man. He has been in exile for, for 60 years probably. He's in his 70s, maybe even 80. He's almost reached the full course of his long life. Why risk death for just giving up your devotions for a month? I mean, there's no injunction in the Bible anywhere that says you have to pray every day. There's no injunction that says you have to pray every week. There's no law of God that Daniel would be breaking by just staying away from Darius the king and not worshiping, not offering prayers, not coming before his God. More than that, as we will see in a couple of weeks, Daniel has been reading Jeremiah's prophetic writings, and he believes the end of the exile is just around the corner. He believes the 70 years, as he understands it, is going to be done, and there is the hope that even in his old age, he is going to be able to go back and see Jerusalem once again. That he might be able to go back to his homeland and again live and worship God the way that he was supposed to. Why would he jeopardize that by giving up devotions for a month? How would you have responded to the temptation given a a similar situation? Would you have finished the course strong or made some excuse to rationalize giving up your devotions to God? Actually, maybe we're even asking the wrong question here. For some of us, there is no devotion to give up. Barna says the average Christian in this country prays between three and seven minutes a day and yet watches television for three hours a day as on the Internet for four. Maybe the real question should be, if God said, will you give up Facebook for me, would we say yes? Will you give up Netflix or cable or sports channel, whatever it is? Then would you, then would that, that would be a real Christ of faith for us, wouldn't it? I say that not to lay guilt on us, but to show us in part the distinction between a man like Daniel, who has no command, no command to pray daily, and yet he feels compelled to pray daily and spend time with his God. How did Daniel respond? We see the answer in the next few verses, and here we see the second, the second fruit of faith, and that is this. True faith 
True faith is seen in committed prayerfulness. True faith is seen in committed prayerfulness. Verse 10, when Daniel knew the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had previously done. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. What is Daniel's response to the threat? Just keep doing what he's always done. To keep praying to God. In fact, verse 10 says that this is what he had done previously. So it's not like it's not like the crisis drives Daniel to pray. No, the crisis doesn't deter him from his prayers. Just as he has always done, morning, noon, and night, Daniel gets on his face and prays before God. Now one might ask, why doesn't he just pray silently or secretly? Why does he just continue his routine but do it in private? After all, I can see someone reading this and saying, well, you know, Daniel is just putting it in people's faces, isn't he? Not at all. Uh, the, the truth of the matter is it's a lose-lose situation. If he didn't pray, if he stopped praying, he would have shown himself unfaithful to God. In fact, that God was not worthy of his faith, either to preserve him or to die for. If he had prayed in secret, then he would have thought to have been unfaithful by those around him. He's just a fair-weather fan of God. When the going is easy, then he'll pray and he'll worship him. When the going gets tough, then he backs off and he ignores God. Daniel not only looks bad, but God himself looks bad. Thus commentator John Goldingay says this, uh, he is certainly right when he says this, when prayer is fashionable, then it is time to pray in secret. But when prayer is under pressure, to pray in secret is to give the appearance of fearing the king more than God. That's exactly what Daniel knew. Daniel knew... This is not the time to deviate from my normal pattern of fellowship with God. And so he prays, as he's always done. Notice how he prays. First of all, he faces Jerusalem. Why does he do that? Is there something magical about facing Jerusalem? Is there, is there magical about facing towards some direction? Some religions believe that. Some, I don't know, maybe some Christians also have that superstition as well. That's not Daniel, though. He's simply obeying God's word. Read 1 Kings chapter 8 this afternoon, and what you see to the dedication of the temple, uh, there is a prophetic word given that says, when you stop worshiping me as you should, O Israel, when you turn your face away from me and go after false gods, and I kick you out of the land in exile, then you need to turn back towards the temple in Jerusalem and repent and seek my face, and then I will restore you. Daniel is a literalist, right? He doesn't just say, God be with your people. He makes a window in his house that faces Jerusalem, that faces where the temple would be, 500 miles away, and he gets down on his knees and he says, God, do what you promised to do. You've humbled your people. You've broken them. Now lead them to repentance and faith that they might be restored once again to fellowship with you. Daniel allows the Bible and what God says in his word to direct and instruct his prayer life. Secondly, Daniel is kneeling. Now, I have grandparents. Some of you do too, and they're in their 70s or 80s. And I'll tell you what, I never see them on their knees for anything. Uh, they hardly bend over. It's like, no, no, I'll, I'll get that. Why? Because I know it is a strain. Uh, they are going to be aching and painful if they're down on their hands and knees for any length of time. Some of you may have parents that are like that as well. And yet, here at this advanced state of age, twi- not twice, Three times a day, Daniel gets down on his knees and he prays to God. And I'm guessing, I could be wrong, but when we get to chapter 9, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to argue my point there. He, does, he doesn't drop and give a 30-second 
prayer like we do. He doesn't just say, you know, uh, you know, uh, bless me and bless my family and be with all the world, amen, and get up. That's not what Daniel's about. In fact, we'll see later in just a minute what he's praying for. Why in the world is he doing it? Is there, again, something special about the position? Is there something that makes God hear the prayer more when you get down on your knees? No, that's not what it's about. That's not what it's about at all. Not only was it a popular cultural expression and form of praying, but it revealed the inward attitude of the heart. I, I, I will never forget. And again, this is, my, my point here is not that there's a specific way that you've got to pray. You've got to close your eyes and bow your heads and, and, and crinkle up. But, you know, they've got the, the Queen's Jubilee going on right now. And if you were to see her, even as an American, you wouldn't just be like, you know, hey, what's up? You know, you know, stop you, there would be a, a level of deference and respect there. You might even curtsy or bow. And Daniel is saying, you know, if we do that kind of stuff for human kings, why not the divine king? Again, not just to be physical and literal as if it's some kind of formula, but to say, shouldn't my outward expression give something about the inward attitude of my heart? And so I'll never forget in college one time, we, we, we tried to have this prayer group, and we met at the church and everything. And um, again, it's not, about, it's not about the specific forms, but something just struck me as absolutely wrong when one of the leaders said, yeah, just, just get comfortable. So, so, so we're up on the front. There's, all, there's probably about 10 steps that lead up to this big church platform. And he's literally like, like sprawled out like he's going to watch, you know, sports zone or something at night. He's like, yeah, just get comfortable and we'll be here for about 20 minutes or so. I'm just thinking, I'm sorry, I can't lounge like that while I'm talking to the creator of the universe. If nothing else, I'm going to sit down and bow my head because it shows... This is not my father or my grandfather or my, my best bud. This is God that I'm talking to. And so even Daniel, at the threat of pain, says, I don't want it to be clear before God and myself. I am humble before him. I know that he is my king and I am his servant. Think about Psalm 95, which is printed up every single week in your bulletin as a call to worship, as a reminder why we're here. Do you remember verse 6? Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. I think Daniel has read that. I think he knows it. And he says, again, I'm going to do that. Not because the position and the form is so important, but it reveals the attitude of my heart. Finally, we see that Daniel prays three times a day. Like David before him, who calls out to God in Psalm 55, morning and evening and at noon, Daniel isn't content to offer up prayers as a means of checking off a box of spiritual disciplines. He delights to spend time with God. And therefore, his whole day is formed around spending time with God. Think about that. When he gets up in the morning, how does he begin the day? By going before God in prayer. The day does not go very long. He hits the midpoint, and he's worked for the day, and he says, I need to stop now, and I need to spend time with God. Perhaps to ask forgiveness of what has gone on before, or just to look forward to the rest of the day. He needs to be with his God. And then before he goes to bed, the day is not complete. The day isn't finished until he again spends time with his God in prayer. Again, spend five times a day if you want. Maybe spend one really long time for, in prayer. The, the point is not, again, the pattern so much as what it evidences in the life of Daniel and where his heart lies. 
It has been said by multiple people that our prayer life is the best indicator of our spiritual health. If that's true, then some of us are desperately sick. But understand, again, prayer is not something for the super spiritual. It is simply the natural expression of our relationship with God. If we understand who God is, if we understand how we have been made to have fellowship with Him, then the most natural thing that we should want to do is to call out to Him in prayer, to trust Him with our lives, to rejoice in what He continues to do for us. So if you struggle with your prayer life, then I'm going to encourage you to, to get to the Bible, to read those passages that especially highlight who God is and what He has done so that your faith in Him will grow. Because when your faith in Him will grow, then your prayer life with Him will also grow. What did Daniel pray for? It's amazing. Even here in exile, even here cut off, from his homeland in this pagan world in an impossible situation, he not only petitions God, he gives thanks to God. Is that how you pray? Do, do you think for all the things that God has done for you and you thank him for those things? Or do you simply ask, 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 ask? Sometimes we might feel like it's hard to give thanks for things. And part of that is our inability to see past our problems to what could be much worse problems and give thanks to God that we've been spared from that. Or we might have a hard time giving thanks because we just don't pray as much as we should. You see, if we pray about everything, then we can give thanks about everything, right? If we pray, when I, when I wake up in the morning, help me have a good day. If nothing else, we get to the end of the day, it's been a good day, we get to thank God. Thank you for a good day. That's somebody says, well, that's just spiritual God with a gook and bad logic. No, it's not. No, it's not. It's a, it's a matter of viewing life through the lens of being lived through God. Consider the elderly woman who loved God, who was a believer, but she was poor. And one morning uh, she's praying, and her window happens to be open, and she, she's praying fervently, God, give me food, give me this day my daily bread. A couple of punks are happening to walk by, and they hear this lady pray, and they say, let's pull one over on her. So they run down to the corner of bodega, they grab some bread, some other groceries, and they come by and they chuck it in the window and run off laughing, because they, they, you know what they're going to think? That old woman thinks that God answered her prayer. Didn't he? Yeah. That's exactly what happened, right? She can rightly thank God for the groceries that flew in her window because even God can use a punk to answer a prayer request, right? She asked, he answered, she gives thanks. How much more for us? You know, the other day I was running around the house, couldn't find my keys, and I thought, oh, man, I'm going to be late. God, help me find those keys. I found the keys, and guess what I had to do? Thank you for letting me find the keys. Now someone says, well, wouldn't you have found the keys if you hadn't prayed? I don't know. I have no way of knowing that. All I know is this. I prayed, God answered the request, and therefore I can give him thanks. This is what it means to, to live like Daniel, to live in such a confident state that everything is an act of God uh, and, 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 and a deliberate faith in him, which results in prayer to him. Well, there's so much more that we could say here about, about Daniel's prayer life. We'll have to save this for another time we do a series on prayer. The, the point that I'm seeking to make, though, is because he has faith in God, because he trusts God implicitly, explicitly, any other plicitly you can think of, omniplicitly, then everything becomes a matter of prayer. And it's not just a duty, it's a delight for Daniel. The one who has faith in God will display evident godliness, committed prayerfulness, and thirdly, true faith is seen in humble steadfastness. Humble steadfastness. 
Verse 11, these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? Notice how they begin. They're reminding the king of the proclamation that he has made. They're, they're, they've set the trap. They've thrown the bait. The line has been pulled, and now they're ready to reel Daniel in. Just as a side note, you may be wondering, why are these dens of lions, lions all around, apparently, for, for ready use? Well, the reality is that hunting lions used to be the sport of kings in the ancient world. And so much like uh, foxes, fox hunting used to be the case in Great Britain, uh, they would actually, other people would go and hunt up the lions, bring them in, keep them fed and, uh, and ready to go. And when the king felt like hunting, they would be released and the king would go after them, uh, hunt them, kill them, or maybe even bring them back again. And so uh, well, this was not only done in the Persian time, this was done all the way up to the Roman times where they were sometimes unleashed into the gladiatorial rings or simply to take out the king's enemies. It was not just for fun for sport. It was a fun way to get rid of people who had offended you. So what does the king respond to what they say? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. It's exactly what the officials want. They, they, they remind the king of what he's done. They remind him that it cannot be revoked, and the deal is sealed. Verse 13, then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and the Persians that no injunction or ordinance the king establishes can be changed. Daniel was a man who was so faithful, so wise before Darius the king, that the king had it in his mind to appoint him to be the highest official in the land, and now he is faced with having to execute him. The king wasn't mad. He wasn't like, ah, off with his head. He's like, oh, no, Daniel, what have you, sorry, what have you done? What, what, what have you done? You're like my favorite. What in the world have you done to me here? I've got to execute you now. And it says he doesn't, not only doesn't want to do it, he has been working for a loophole all day. Now, what's the deal with this Medes and Persians thing and the law not being revoked? The, law, the kings can't change the law? Of course they can change the law. The reason why they have this, though, is that if they change the law, it makes them look stupid, foolish, and weak. It makes them look like they don't even know what they want. And so when they, they establish this, this law, it, ma- it makes them look as if they know exactly what's going on and they are in complete control. If Darius says, ah, just forget it, then he looks like he's this weak king, and guess what? Suddenly he's got a target on his back. He can't just revoke the law. And yet, he doesn't want to throw Daniel in as well. All day, he is trying to figure out how to get the verdict reversed until sundown he's doing this. But at nightfall, the officials gleefully returned and reminded the king of his edict. Then we read in verse 16, the king commanded and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, may your God who you serve continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signet of his lords that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. 
Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Reluctantly, the king lets Daniel be taken and thrown into the den. The king is hopeful, though, that something, anything might be done by Daniel's God that he might be saved. And with all this weighing on his mind, the king returns to the palace. But rather than delight in the death of this dissident, he fasts. He skips dinner. He skips the normal kingly diversions, which you can figure out what that meant. And he struggles all night, sleepless and in distress because of Daniel. And part of what's amazing is that Daniel is silent through the whole thing. He doesn't say anything to the king. He, he doesn't say, king, come on, I'm your favorite. I'm going to be prime minister in a couple of weeks. What, why are you doing this? Are you insane? Can't you see this is a trap? Don't you know how good I am? I don't deserve to be killed. He doesn't say a thing. I, I have a, a feeling that would not be us in this situation. Based on our culture and, and, and the mindset in this country, the first thing that we would have done would be to organize a protest when word of the law came out. We would have been petitioning the high officials and the satraps who govern over our regions and saying, I can't believe that you would do this. That this is intolerable. This is infringing on my freedom of religion. And on and on and on. And then when it was time for Daniel to be taken, we would have had, you know, the life chain outside, you know, and they would have had to be beating us down to get to Daniel. And Daniel would have been yelling and screaming and writing off for petitions for some last minute pardon. I mean, am I wrong? Am I exaggerating? That's likely what we would have been doing. And Daniel doesn't do any of that. Daniel doesn't do any of that. It's not as if Daniel has a death wish. It's not as if he said, well, I'm an old man. I'm, I'm ready to go. No, that's, that's not him. But he knows griping and complaining is not going to help his case. Trying to stand up to the king is not going to do anything but show disrespect to him and dishonor the faith that he's already displayed in his God. God would be less glorified for Daniel to display fear and complain about the sentence than if he humbly, steadfastly submitted to the decree that had been done. Now let me just say, as we think about applying this, this is where Christian ethics gets very specific. If someone is coming in your house to thieve, to injure, then you have ev- you are within every right imaginable to defend yourself. Okay? Um, my kids know that there's a big pole under my bed, and if someone comes in and tries to take them, they're going to have to face a very angry daddy with that big metal pole in their hand in the hallway. I will fight and I will resist. But here's the thing. If we are being challenged and abused and persecuted for the cause of Christ, because we are gospel people, because we refuse to call Caesar Lord because Christ is Lord, then we don't fight, we don't resist, we die. Because that's what Jesus did. He he was was not just some political dissident. The reason why Jesus faced the crimes that he did was for blasphemy. It was specifically related to who he believed God was, who he thought he was in relationship with God, and because it didn't fit with the Jewish religious leaders of the time. This is why he was put on trial, and this is why he was like a lamb that was silent before his shears. Because the worst thing he could have done was to plead for his life. 
to plead his innocence because he knew on those charges he was not innocent. He was God in the flesh. He was there as the Savior of humanity and the King of all people because that is who God had ordained that he be. And therefore he humbly, resolutely went to the fate that was before him. As Christians, when the government says, you know, you can't be, you can't be preaching that hate speech about X, Y, and Z group or else we're going to take away your tax-exempt status. And you know what we say? Send us the bill! Because we're not going to complain. We're not going to fight. Who cares about a tax-exempt status? We will preach the Bible because it is God's word. When someone comes to arrest me or abuse me because I am specifically a Christian, I may cover my head so I don't get a concussion, but I will not fight back. What, what, what worse thing could there be than the headline on the Bay City Times that says, Pastor of Southern Baptist Church beats up two thugs? Nobody's coming to this church anymore. Nobody's coming to this church anymore. No one wants to be a part of Southern Baptists. And everyone will say what a hateful group of Christians that is. And so therefore, as Jesus did, as Daniel did, even as it is explicitly taught, when the gospel's on the line, we don't stand up for our rights. We die for our king. That's what we are called to do. This is why the ancient Christians said the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church. You cannot argue with a passive, humble, steadfast resolve to worship God without compromise, even if it means death. Few things bring more glory than that kind of display of faith. That's the true display of faith that is found in our text. And the last display that we see is this in verses 19 through 28. True faith is seen in proven blamelessness. True faith is seen in proven blamelessness. At the break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. Verse 20. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, is your God whom you serve continually, but able to deliver you from the lions? The king hadn't slept all night. He is tossed and he is turned. He is worried about Daniel. And then at first light, he went in haste. I don't know what that means. It sounds all like running. And he cries out in anguish. Why? I think it's because he didn't hear anything. You know, if he had heard Daniel maybe yelling out because of his injuries, that somehow he had been attacked, but he escaped, and he was still alive, barely moaning, hanging on, the king might have had some glimmer of hope, but he hears nothing, believing that early in the night the lions had their feast and Daniel is no more. And yet still there is this kind of nagging thought that from all that he's seen in Daniel, from all that he's heard from Daniel, from what he's heard and read about in the recent history of Babylon, maybe, just just perhaps, Daniel, could your God have saved you? Could he have done something to rescue you? In verse 21, Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths. And they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. 
The king's only hope came true. Daniel, God showed up and proved the den didn't belong to the lions. It belonged to Daniel. While Darius tossed and turned in his bed, Daniel slept well on the ground surrounded by an angel and subdued lions. While Darius worried about the future, Daniel rested in the sovereign power and wise care of the one true God. And when he is called out of the pit in the morning, amazingly, he harbors no bitterness, but respectfully, honorably gives the official greeting, O king, live forever. In fact, he points out, king, you know, I have never been a threat, and I am vindicated before you in that my God found me blameless and stopped your lions from ravaging me. It's not hard to see why the early Christians saw in this story of Daniel's life a foreshadowing of Christ. In fact, you can find, you can Google search and find early Christian art that has Daniel in the den of lions and Jesus in the tomb and displays both their almost death and his real death and their coming out of the tomb and resurrection as being parallel and picturesque. Daniel was thrown into the den, left for dead. Jesus experienced death and was left in a tomb. Once there, Daniel had a stone rolled in front of the entrance to the den as it was sealed with the signet ring of the king and his officials. Likewise, in Matthew 26, Pilate says, Make the tomb of Jesus as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Just as Daniel emerged alive from the den, so Jesus emerged alive and victorious from his death and the tomb. Daniel says that he was preserved to this trial because he was found blameless before God and was vindicated in his blamelessness by his release. Likewise, the Bible says that Jesus was found blameless before God and thus his resurrection is a vindication of his faithfulness even unto death. But unlike Daniel, Jesus really died. And he did so willingly for the salvation of his people. In his life, Jesus earned a righteous life and on the cr- for us. And on the cross, Jesus died a sacrificial death for us. When we look to him in faith as Savior to make us right with God, God considers Jesus' life our life and Jesus' death our death. In his death, our sins have been atoned for and are forgiven. And in his life, we stand righteous and blameless before God. So that when we place faith in Christ, we will be vindicated on that final day. Because we will be found blameless in him. Like so many Christians today, we may not escape persecution and death in this life. But we will nevertheless experience eternal fellowship with God in the life to come and be vindicated as one day we rise incorruptible, unstained by sin, perfectly holy before our God. The plot against Daniel was unsuccessful. What's worse, it backfired. Verse 24, And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Daniel wasn't saved because the lions were old, because they were stupid, drunk, they were toothless, or sleepy. They devour these other men before they're even at the bottom of the den. It was God who showed up. Verse 25, then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell on all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall never come to an end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who saved Daniel from the power of the lions 
So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. We have seen here for the third, to- the third time a king of Babylon declaring faith in the sovereignty of Israel's God above all other gods. More than that, we have a picture of what awaits the people of God on the final day where sin is destroyed and all confess that God is king overall. This morning we see the life of a man deemed blameless by God and it is an example for us to follow, but how shall we follow it? By doing exactly what Daniel did. We look to God in faith. That's what produces the kind of life that is seen in Daniel. It's not a matter of religiosity or checklists. It is about seeing the majestic glory of God as an all-sovereign king who has reached out to sinners who deserve wrath and has given them mercy. When we behold that God and put our faith in him again and again and again, then our life begins to change. Because we do not fear any person in this life. We need not be tempted by any sin because they all pale in comparison to the one true God. The path to a life of blamelessness before God and faithfulness to God begins with faith in God through the sending of His Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we are so thankful for Christ and for what He has done for us. God, we pray that You would be at work continuing to help us to see Him, to know Him, to trust in Him with all that we have. God, do this not just for the glory of His name, but for our good as well, as we continue to trust Him and You continue to craft us into a blameless people before you. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.